my absolute pleasure to introduce to you tonight's guest. He is a Chicano man who did not let poverty, addiction, or gangs dictate who he has become. He is an award-winning writer, novelist, poet, political activist, and is now running for governor of California. Let's put our emoji hands together for Mr. Luis J. Rodriguez, baby. All right. My huh? pleasure. My huh? pleasure. Huh? Huh? Hey, 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 Luis. You know, I've been looking for you, right? Yeah, I know. I heard about it. That's why I've been hiding. I've been looking for you, huh? Yeah, I heard. I heard. <laughs> I, 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 I've been emailing. Oh. I've been I've been sending little kites. <laughs> I've been sending smoke signals. <laughs> and finally, this gentleman got a hold of me. And his, I said, I, I got no problem posting that, homie. I got nothing but love with the Rasa. But just let you know, I've been looking for this guy, man. How you yeah, doing, my man? I'm doing good. It's an honor to be here. No, Thank man. It, it, it's, an, it's an honor to have you here, man. I, I definitely appreciate you coming on. And let's get this thing going, man. Where were you born and raised? I was born in El Paso, Texas. But we were from Juaritos, the other side. And two years old, we ended up in Los Angeles. And just so people know, I started on the south side. Uh, Watts was my community up to eight years old. What year was this? This is, oh, from 56 to 1960, oh, wow. whatever it was. That's old school. I got out just before the Watts Rebellion. Okay. I, I saw the TV where all the burning, that's my old yeah. neighborhood. Okay. I knew 103rd Street. Uh, so anyway, that, that, that was my community. But we ended up finally in the San Gabriel Valley. And I was in a neighborhood called, that we called Lomas, so it was South San Gabriel, which people may not know was actually one of the poorest neighborhoods in LA County. Really? Dirt roads, little shacks on people's, you know, goats and chickens in backyards, no sidewalks. It was a really rough neighborhood surrounded by well-off white people with sidewalks and strip malls and stores. I mean, so we were caught. We were in the east side of L.A., but we were more in the side where the Monterey Park and Alhambra, San Gabriel were now more white people were there. But these values were these old migrant Mexican neighborhoods, 100 of them in San Gabriel Valley. And they were all poor. You got Monteflores. You got Sangra. You got um, uh, La Puente, all kinds of neighborhoods that were just left alone. And we pretty much had a fight our way through everything, not only not only with other barrios, but all the white people and all the police, because the sheriff's deputies was the main. So we were constant, well, I could say we were in constant war. That's what it was there. So you, you were actually there at the beginning where a lot of these uh, barrios began and, and, and yeah. a lot of the history of, of young Chicanos joining gangs, right? Yeah, I was. And, you know, the whole Cholo thing was really, we were the ones that, I, I don't want to say I started, we started it. Your, all gener of us, your generation. generation. Our generation became Cholos. There wasn't Cholos before. There was old Pachucos, and there was a lot well, of that's other right. things. That's right. So you saw that. Yeah. And I remember some of the old Pachucos. Some of them were hypes in the in the corners. Of the, they used to have, they used to call them hobos. They call them homeless encampments. They were just yeah. really hoboed. And there were a lot of old Me Mexicano tecatos, you know, and there were old Pachucos. Some, you know, people talk about tattooed faces. I remember seeing these old Pachucos with their faces really? all tattooed. Yeah. They so were doing it before anybody was doing it. So... Yeah, uh, that's the sound of the member joining. <laughs> there you go. That's an angel getting his wings, Chris. There you go. There you go. So I also, uh, I read your book very long time ago. I had to do a recap, and that's what everybody kind of first got their glimpse at you, and we'll get to that yeah. part, right? But I'm going off stuff of the book. 
you spoke somewhat about Southgate, and now we think Southgate, we think Raza, we think you. Oh, when, yeah. well, I think Southgate. I think when they win the soccer game, all these fools going in <laughs> with, go. with that bandera <laughs> running around, right? Go. But when you were when you went to Southgate, tell a story so, of when you and your brother went out there one so time. So we were in Watts on the other side, and Watts was black and brown, even way back then. It was always mixed black and brown. But the the Alameda Railroad tracks separated us from Southgate, so we didn't have any grocery stores in Watts. There were small little mom and pa stores, yeah. and, but there was no grocery store. So my mom would say, go get the grocery store. You got to go across the tracks. Mm -hmm. But we knew, me and my brother, now he was nine, I was six, that we had to sneak in there, get the food and get out because mm -hmm. they were these white guys, racists, that were just waiting to see a Mexican or a black guy come through come there and beat the heck out of them. So we went over there, snuck in there, got out. And sure enough, these teenagers, they weren't even kids, teenagers on bikes, mm -hmm. stopped me and my brother and uh, start beating, uh, beating us up. They held me, they beat my brother. Uh, these are teenagers, I'm not talking about guys our age, I would've loved it, I could've hanged yeah. them. I could hang with a six year old. Yeah, I could hang <laughs> another five or six year old. But no, it was, it was that kind of world and they yeah. just threw us back over the tracks and that's the way it was in those days. Linwood was like that. All those neighborhoods that are now Raza, yeah. they're now all our people. It used to be almost all white. It kind of it kind of reminds me of the South and how yeah. right and how the yeah. how the African Americans tell so many stories of white people saying "Get out of here, you in." So you yeah. guys would say the "Get out of here, you spit." Get out of here, you wet back. And that was a normal thing. Beaners, all the words they used to come up with. You know, uh, a lot of the gangs in South Central, a lot of the black gangs were to protect themselves from the white gangs. See, so that's what people don't know, the old Slossons and the Gladiators and the Bowery Hunters, oh, wow. the original, they were all created to fight against whites that were still in South Central and or coming out of the Southgate area, that whole part of the town. Yeah, because that area didn't really start getting, uh, uh, what is the white flight to, like the yeah. mid-60s or something? I would say by the late 60s, 70s, white flight really hit hard. And uh, maybe by 80s, it was already it was gone It was already people yeah because when i yeah. lived in south in the 80s it was all awesome. yeah right yeah, yeah. yeah it went really quickly mm -hmm. and it's the same with almost the valley too because i'm in the valley now a lot of these neighborhoods I mean, there used to be a mexican side of the valley we're in it north hollywood and all that but now the mexicans are everywhere right right <laughs> they're yeah, all yeah. over so we just multiply yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so Boo was supposed to ask this, but he, since he forgot, he's uh, what, what was your guys' relation with the black and brown and watching those areas? Oh, no, it wasn't what people think about it now. There was no Plato, like, you know, it was never like that. I got along, we got along. Uh, the only one that didn't get along with my brother because he was real wet on. And I would turn really brown in summertime. So, you know, yeah. I was like, fine. I was like, same color as everybody else. And summertime, you get all, you know, yeah, pietito. <laughs> but my brother, he never could get pietito. Ah, so yeah. he was constantly getting beaten up. But, because of his skin color. But, he, he, became, was white. but he became one of the best fighters. Really? Oh, yeah. He all learned to fight. He practiced. So we ended up shortly in the valley in Reseda. Now, Reseda is also not one of these Vario La Raza there, but in those days, there was nobody. Mm -hmm. It was all white people. And we were there for a short time because my dad just got a job. He thought he could buy a house. He bought a car, bought a TV, but went crazy. We lost it all, mm -hmm. you know, but it didn't matter. We were there. We were being chased by all these white people. Oh. And then I had to deal with all these white people. My brother, he messed right. with him. He beat the heck out of the biggest white people. So they stopped messing with me because my brother could beat them all up. Yeah. And that's because of the life growing up in Watts, you know. So Watts was a rough neighborhood, but I never saw it as a, a tension between black and brown. It was more like beefs and people messing with you and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Was was Canoga a little bit of Mexican area still back then? 
You know, with that, I don't know. The only ones I remember out here at the time that was Mexican was this, the northeast side was Pacoima, Van Nuys, and all those areas, you know, that now we know is like the Mexican side, even though, like I said, Mexicans everywhere. But Reseda, man, it's all Raza now. You go there, it's all right, gente, and it's great. Yeah, the whole vibe. But when I was there, man, it was all white people, man. So, so you also, as a, as a child, you, man, you took a lot of abuse. You know what? I took a lot of abuse. I don't know entirely where it comes from. My brother, and again, I love my brother. He passed two years ago. He was only three years older than me, but he um, used to beat the heck out of me. And people don't know about sibling <laughs> Kind of reminds yeah. me of my brother. Abuse. You know, sibling <laughs> abuse, we don't talk about. Yeah, we talk brother. about parental abuse. Yeah. Sibling abuse is bad. Yes. People don't know how bad it is. Uh, it actually messes with you. Yes. My brother used to do everything short of kill me. And I think he tried to kill me two or three times. <laughs> uh, he would do something silly like kill me. Like I would follow him because I didn't have nobody to hang with. So I'd yeah. follow him to his little homies, little friends. And he would have his friends beat me up. <laughs> That's, that's I mean, we can laugh at it now, but back then you're a kid. That's and some scary stuff. Kid, going on. Yeah, and he tried to choke me to death, and he threw me off rooftops and did everything Jeez. you could imagine. Yeah. So your father yeah. was actually an educated man, right? So he, unlike a lot of Mexicans, they came as workers. Some of them no education. Like my wife's mom and dad only went to first grade. My dad and my mom were both highly educated. I mean, secundaria. I mean, they weren't college so but much. But for the time. For the time, you get a secundaria, you're you're educated. So he became a principal of high school. That was in Juarez? In Juarez. And okay. so, but just really quickly, the story was that he had a lot of political enemies there mm-hmm. with the PRI and everything. He was not um, liked, and so they wouldn't give him any money for his school. Mm-hmm. So one year he had to uh, take down the fence and sell the parts to get school supplies. Oh, wow. And they arrested wow. him for stealing property. And he ended up in jail in wow. Ciudad Juarez. And then when he left, when he got out of jail, he just told, said, my mom, I'm done with Mexico. Yeah. I'm going to the United States. I'm done. And, yeah. and, and yeah, in your book, you re- I, I saw that part where your dad was like, he's going there. I'm making it one way or another. He came he determined, right? He was going right? to do it. He was so determined to make the American dream. Now, the problem with that is, of course, it was more a nightmare than a dream. Uh, we lost so many jobs. There was so much instability. We were constantly being put one, one house to another. You're talking about many schools. I yeah. went to about eight, at least eight elementary schools. We were always back and forth. And then we ended up in South San Gabriel, which is one of the really rough, poor neighborhoods. It was really bad. But it was all Chicanado. I mean, it was all our hint. That's when I really got to get the sense of what it is to be Chicano. Because nice. even in Watts, I didn't write. I was Mexican and everything. But in, in South San Gabriel, it was... Raza, like Chicanos. I mean, they had that mixture of Spanish and English. Right. They, had the calor. Right. they were they were really, and then they had this barrio street life. So I, that's where I really learned all that. So you got into the street life fairly young. I was at, I would say eleven years old. That's very young. And when I ju- got jumped into my, I went to about three different little incarnations of gangs, but it all became Lomas. Okay, but let's but, let's, yeah. let's talk about those incarnations. I'm 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 very curious to hear about them. So the first was we started little clubs. We all thought we were clubs, you know. So the first one was called the impersonations. What kind of clubs were you guys just? Were just clubs like just, little rascals or what? Party club, <laughs> but more like little rascals when you're eleven years old. Yeah, well, yeah, how about, you don't right? know you know what a party is, but you know right. we're little. We just they have a little club, but you know what happens? You have a little club. The other guys come around and say, Hey man, who? you where you at where yeah. you what club you from yeah and then pretty soon other clubs were messing with us but then the lomas was ha- all hanging over everything 
And pretty soon, all the clubs became part of Lomas. Yeah. They all got jumped in. So, but we jumped people into impersonations. It wasn't just like, yeah, like just join the club. We jumped people in. I don't know where we come up with this stuff where we had to jump people in, and then and then we had little uh, jackets. Yeah. You know, we who knows why why we did all this stuff. We had little cards. It didn't last very long because once you're in Lomas, but you guys you, even had yeah. cards. We had uh, while you're from the club. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, you guys started you members go. only. There you go. We started. We could have made millions by now. Yeah. But uh, I think that's what it was. And it was just kids, you know, I, they were just lost boys. Yes. You know? and we weren't, didn't have any, a lot of fathering. And I hate to say that because I think there's good fathers out there. Yeah, but, but it's true. You yeah. know, and my dad, uh, to be honest with you, just worked all the time. My mom worked all the time. So I was a latchkey kid in the, in, you know, somebody had to fall to the cracks. It was me. Yeah. Uh, my brothers, uh, my brother and my two sisters from my, my dad, he always had four other half brothers, sisters. Uh, we were just um, latchkey kids, but I was the one that fell to the cracks. You know, so so what, what, was. what was the last neighborhood that you were in before you guys got into Lomas? So it, it, it started another little club called the, the Little Gents. Okay. And then we started one called the Southside Boys for South San Gabriel. This is what got us in trouble. Yeah. Because Sangra, we said South Sangra. We had a jacket, Southside Boys, South Sangra. Ah. And Sangra was for San Gabriel, the mission, old neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They would, we would go show up in carnivals and wear our little jackets. And they came up and they said, you ain't, they ain't no South Sangra. Yeah, you either sangra or you and nothing. And I go, what? You, you can't tell us what to do. Oh man, they they would jump us. <laughs> so the only refuge we had was the Lomas would say, man, you got to be Lomas. You can't be, can't be, can't be nothing either. You can't. You got to be Lomas or sangra. And that I, I jumped into the Lomas. You did, did you have to get jumped into those other three gangs? I so. got Well, <laughs> <laughs> you got a super whipping. You know, actually, the only two I, I got jumped in the impersonations, and then um, there was the the Lomas. The first in Clica, right? The Chicos, and then I got jumped in again to be part of the Locos. Oh wow! Okay, at that time was the hardcore guys. So, yeah, you, you come, yeah, come yeah. to the Locos. Oh, you, you, you had to be right? sponsored. Yeah, yeah, you know how it is. Oh, yeah, you had sure. to have a guy, a homie, saying, "I, I vouch for this dude." For you, know, sure. you couldn't just get in because a lot of guys were trying to get in, and people would say. Yeah, here we don't want you. You're not crazy to, enough. Yeah, exactly. And all this happened when you're 11, 12, 13 years 11, old? Yeah, I got out of it by 19, 20 years old. So yeah. all that was going through that. And you know, once you start that life, then yeah. you're in the street, oh, yeah. then you're getting busted, and then you're in juvenile hall, and then you're uh, not going to school. Uh, I got kicked out of schools. Uh, I was homeless for about three years during oh, that wow. time. Oh, well, wow. So how, how did yeah. that come about, you becoming homeless? Well, my mother threw me out. That was it. And my dad's in the way. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to follow the rules, go. <laughs> That's exactly what. And, yeah. and, and, you know, my dad, um, he didn't really have a lot of connection. You know, I don't know if you guys know, uh, I don't mind talking about fatherhood, but some dads are free, you know, they're very emotionally detached. Mm -hmm. My dad was like that. So he didn't really get involved. He should have locked me around, but he didn't do nothing. Yeah. It was my mom, and... But she would always say, "El rey is is tu papá." But I think, I think, but, I think yeah. Louis, that's the case for the majority of yeah. Chicano kids, Mexican kids, yeah. even and, that are in gangs. Because yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with you know, our, like not my father. I never knew my father, but like my yeah. my family's father. Same thing. He just works, takes care of the family, yeah. and the mom's the yeah, one the kind of exactly. That's what it was. And you know, a lot of my homies didn't have dads, and they would complain. Whenever I complained about my dad, they would say, well, at least you got a dad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. They had a point. <laughs> but but he might as well not be a dad, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. So my mom threw me out, and then I was in the streets. Uh, and then what happened is it got really cold. You know, I didn't mind the streets, actually. Uh, I had a thing where I would I was already on heroin. I started heroin, I would say, uh, 12 years old, but I was just snorting it or putting it on weed and everything. Then I started shooting it up at 15. Oh, Jesus. So by the time that I was in the street, I was already shooting up. 
But I re- it, was, it made this party what saved me. I hated shooting up with other people because they were all start sharing. I didn't do it for those reasons. I didn't know anything about sharing needles. Yeah. Right. I just hated to be around other people. Mm-hmm. So I would carry my ere, find my spot, usually abandoned car, abandoned building, and just shoot up myself. Pretty for the most part. Yeah. I had close homies that I shot up with, girlfriends, you know, hyenas that you know we shot up together. But I, it probably saved me because what. A lot of guys got liver damage from that time because oh, yes. they were shooting up in these dens and oh. among, with other people and they didn't really care. I think it saved me that I just pretty much was my own well, guy. Who introduced you to that poison? You know what? It, it comes from the street, man. It's really funny because I don't think we had cared about it. We knew anything about it. We weren't you meant know, to the, be the real addicts. Dangerous of it. Just... All of a sudden, it pops up, man. All of a sudden, people, we, we weed, everybody had weed. But then all of a sudden, somebody, people are, oh, hey, man, you want to try some kataga? Kataga, what's kataga? You know, well, try it, you know. Okay. And they don't shoot it up right away because you OD and die. Right. So they, they they treat you. They kind of prepare you. You put it in. Grooming you. Yeah, they're grooming you. You put it in your cigarettes or you put it in your weed. You, know, you put it in powder. Yeah. Eventually, you're shooting it in the, in the, in the muscle, which is not as direct. And oh. then, then you get to the point where, hey, man, I, I, I need that. more. Yeah. And then you think, well, uh, what I can shoot up in a day, okay, I'd be cool, but then pretty soon you're shooting up um, in a day what you, uh, you're shooting up in, in a day what you would in a week. In other words, things are escalating. Pretty soon you need more and more. And I used to have the attitude, I'm never going to be like the Tecate on the corner, the button junkies on me. I'm not going to be like that. And then pretty soon you get you find yourself in that corner. You, know, you, you like, got to feed the beast. You got to feed the beast. And that's the terrible part of heroin. And I, I do think it was... Um, out of design, not our design. I think there was something systematic about why it hit all these neighborhoods, mostly black and brown neighborhoods. Uh, white key people were involved too, but mostly they were bikers. Uh, mostly they were, uh, you know. The, the ones they would call uh, white trash to them. Yeah, the, white trash, outlaw, right. um, outlaw yeah. whites. Uh, but it was our barrios and our ghetto neighborhoods that had heroin and it came in hard and almost everybody. In my neighborhood, I would say almost everybody, at least in my group of homies, Generation? was was, uh, really? was had, or had an addict. What, yeah. what, what year was wow. this? This is so. This would be the six, late sixties, early seventies. Yeah. How was the dress code in those years? Well, we were all cholios. Now the cholo thing came out of the the La Campo, came out of the juvenile hall, came out of Preston and all the different oh, the institutions, YAs, huh? the YAs, because they gave you certain ways of dressing, and then yeah. pretty soon ah. the Chicanos figured out a way to make them look cool. You know, and it was always wow. extra baggy. Yeah. And then if you, you could take them home, and if you take them home, or you can find them like that, you know, the khakis, you start yeah, creasing pressing them, them creasing <laughs> them up. Oh, wow. This is a great it, history. It, it, it came a... out of the institutions that everybody was going through. And from um, Stacey Adams to tennis shoes. Exactly. Huh? <laughs> and then we had the old Stacey Adams. That was the, the best shoe. And you had to sign them up, keep them cool. You know, we, we were cholos, but we. Rest up. Now, the only problem is once you're homeless and heroin, yeah. your yeah, khakis yeah. are not creased <laughs> anymore. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah, khakis by that point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Oh, wow. So that's yeah. interesting. So, the, the, so before like that, that era, everybody was still a pachuco out of the 50s? There were still pachucos there. And they were still had a pachuco style. So they were the, the, the tandos, you know, the hats. And they had uh, the, the pantalones and the, and the suspenders were still there. You know, there was more like that. Uh, but the total thing kind of really turned turn that around. It, huh? it overtook it. So what, what the year? Penotins, you... but the big size penitents, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's when you didn't put them on, you put them yeah. over your arm. Yeah. Exactly. You didn't wear a penitent. And you know surfers yeah. had penitents, but mm-hmm. they was yes. always tight. 
it was mm-hmm. all, and we had them cool. Yeah. And we would actually crease them too. We would actually yeah, starch right. them and keep them sharp. They could yeah. stand up by themselves. So, what year would you say? And this is just your opinion. Uh, would you say was the uh, the death of Pachuco? Well, uh, I would say in the late fifties. In the late fifties, and then by the time that our generation was coming up to the in institutions, mm-hmm. then the the cholo started coming out. I would say by the early to mid. 60s by the time that i got involved when when you yeah. were involved in the in the gang life how many uh of your uh friends or people you knew uh either overdosed or died or just you know went to prison for a long time well i would life? say and i've i got 25 names in my book 25 friends and even some sangra guys that i knew because right. they were their enemies i some of them yeah, i grew up with them, yeah. i knew them they were friends up to a point um 25 died by the time i was 18. And majority killed in gang warfare. Four were killed by police, unarmed. You know how the police were killing yeah. us too. Uh, so there was a lot of heroin overdoses. I think uh, at least one of them was suicide. You know, but that's the world that I was in. As far as how many people went to the pinta, I don't got no numbers, but it was everybody else. It was yeah, almost like yeah. the pinta was a big deal. Everybody was ready for it. It was prepared. We didn't. Nobody was scared. Like they say, it's a deterrence for us. No, there's no deterrence. You know? we, we 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 look yeah. at it like we're going to Harvard. Exactly. Yep. That's and, our schooling. That's and, our. And and exactly. that was still that was still the way with you guys, huh? It was, and it was kind of strange because it it made you not want to prepare for anything else. Oh my You're God. preparing for the crazy life, and that meant. You got to go into the prisons and you got to be part of that world. It prepared you for something that we can be on top of, we can control, but we weren't prepared for jobs. We weren't prepared to own businesses. We weren't prepared for another world, just that world. And we were good at that world, I have to say. I don't think it was. Unfortunately. Like, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it's true, but we were good in that world. There was nobody more prepared for the prison life than yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Everybody else kind of emulated the way we do things in order to be where they're at because. We, we set the pattern. And what, what do you, you know? think that was? Was it big, like older homies coming out? And, and, and Older homies were always important because you always listen to the, the older guys. Me. And even the guys out of YA and those guys? And all those guys. And they were, to me, older homies. Yeah, of course. They were 18, 19. Yeah. I was 15, 16, and yeah. they were the big homies. You know, but they really weren't that older than us. But once they come out of those institutions, they're all buffed. They got all the tatuajes. All the They got the placasos on their body, you know, and they got the women. And they got the talk. And then they got the best drugs. And then you're like, Hey, I want that life. At the time, they were it looks good. they were it looked they good. were the thing. Of course, a few years later, they're, they're in bad shape. Yeah, you know? yeah. By that time, oh, by that time, your yeah. your guys are in bad shape, and the guys below yeah. you, and that's how the and they looked up to us, and yeah. they thought they thought we were the big deal, and so that's how we instigated that world again. A lot of lost boys, a lot of lost men, uh, trying to help each other. Yeah, I think we loved each other. I think there's a lot of love in the body. I think yeah. there's a lot of things that I I love about being in the neighborhood, but. The, the terrible, dangerous, destructive things just overwhelmed yeah. almost everything. And yeah. but I was going to say, like, when, when I first heard about you, I was a freshman in high school. A teacher gave me your book, Always yeah. Running, and she was like, she was trying to figure out how to, how to get me to pay attention, I guess. And um, she had gave me your book, and I was like, well, what's this? And she's like, no, read it. This guy, you know, is... She can relate to you. So I was like, oh, okay. And I remember just like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's another book. But, yeah. you know, as I'm reading it and uh, i started noticing that you were more like me because your family came from 
out in El Paso. Yeah, my yeah. family came from that. You guys moved to Watts. We went to Southgate, yeah. you know, and then we branched out to other cities after yeah. that, you know, and I, and that's when I first learned about you and I started reading that book. And I wish I still had that book today because that would have been awesome. I don't know what happened to it. Or oh, my man. mom probably. But you know, I appreciate I that know. because you I know? when I wrote it, I actually wrote it for my son who okay. was joined a gang in Chicago. Mm -hmm. He was 15 years old and I didn't have anything else. I, was, I had a hard time guiding him. I, yeah. I didn't raise him. So, you know, he comes to me at 13 years old, like, you ain't my dad. You know, he's challenging me, you know, and I'm like, I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I was really in bad shape. Uh, but what that book did, it helped me sober up completely. Because after I let go of the drugs, I was on drugs for about seven years. Then I drank for 20 years. Yeah. I finally sobered up when that year the book came out. So it was right. connected to my helping my son and knowing that I had to be sober and ready for this challenge. I had another son born with my, my third wife and then a... a, a Another son came later. I says, and then I have my daughter. So I said, I got to be there for my kids. And it woke me up. It mm -hmm. got me. I got to do this. So that's how Always Ready so came out. was that one of your first, first books? Well, I actually had a poetry book just before that. Maybe we'll, a couple we'll, poetry we'll books. We'll get to that. All right. Yeah. You're jumping the gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but it was the big book. But it was but the, the most the important book. The great thing that you were saying, that book not only changed your guy's life, it changed a lot of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I was going to say. I didn't know it was going to have that impact. I wrote it for my son. I wrote it for kids like him. Uh -huh. But, man, it started moving quickly. I got on all the big TV shows, Good Morning America, Oprah Winfrey, Entertainment Weekly. Ah, you were with Oprah? I was with oh, Oprah. Man. I was, it was, I was, it was, I was right but here, you know what, why? It's Oprah, look at us now. Exactly. <laughs> but you know what it was is, it came out a year after the LA Uprising. Oh, okay. So now everybody's yes. interested in LA gangs. And there was one book, Shaika Shakur's uh, Monster, Monster about right. the black gangs. Mm -hmm. And then there was no Chicano book, but I had one. Yeah. I had the Chicano side story, which was important because it was an important part of that whole LA life yes. and the uprising. So it just hit the right time. It was like the best time. Somebody even said, hey, man, did you start the rights just to yeah. get your book? <laughs> like, nah, no. I wish I could. I couldn't do it. You you actually lost a friend because you talk uh, also a lot uh, about the sheriffs and their racism. Mm -hmm. You lost a friend to, to the sheriffs, right? So the sheriffs killed two my best homies, my best friends. Two of them were killed by sheriffs. And so I tell that story because they were unarmed. They were They shouldn't have been killed. But it's part of the life. Mm -hmm. it's, they attacked us. They beat us up. They challenged us. There was a lot of racism. Almost all these sheriffs at the time were white. It might have been one or two Chicano, but they were all part of the yeah, police yeah. thing. Part of the badge. And they and they hate us. We gave them names. We gave them like cowboy, bofo, red. We gave mm -hmm. them all these names because they were like another gang. So we might as well give them black castles too, you know. Yeah. And so they um, they killed my two best homies. They got to a point in one any close homies. If we got close to me, I didn't want to get close to them because you're gonna get killed, dude. I was always thinking I was the jinx. How, old were, how old were the homies? Well, one was. Um, I think 17, the other one was 18. They're kids. They were kids, just babies, just starting. And just to let you know how complicated it is, the last homie that got killed, the close homie that got killed, got killed in this thing. I was trying to bring the two bodies together. We were trying to do trucing, yes. which between, is very difficult, who? but it was Lomas and Sangra. Okay. I was trying to do it. I, I was getting tired of everybody dying. Yeah. I, like I said, I knew guys in Sangra. I mean, we used to all hang together, and then they go to one high school, go to one other high school, and now we're killing each other. Yeah. So I was trying to bring them together, but the police and the sheriffs didn't want this. They did everything to undermine it, and what they did is they infiltrated the gangs, both of them. And so some of the guys, and, you know, informants, some of the guys played the game of instigating the warfare right. yeah. against what I was doing. 
And um, I think that's how two of my homeboys are very two. One of them was was my best friend, and one wasn't. But they were, both got shot at once, and I think it was through the instigation of the police, the but sheriffs. That that, that also uh, had somewhat to do of you kind of pushing away from the gang. You no, know, some of the guys I, didn't like I, what you were doing. Yeah, and what I was doing is not leaving the gang. I still never left the gang. Never got jumped out, but I didn't like the warfare. And then I started realizing because I was being uh, mentored by the Chicano activists. The Chicano That's movement was, was very hopeful. And they were giving me another vision of the world. But they weren't telling me to leave the neighborhood so much. It's just, dude, why are you guys killing each other? And they gave me the background, the political background, all these developers with money, like you were saying. Like we're talking earlier. Paper. Right. They got a piece of paper. They got us. And here we are killing each other. And, then they, and they're getting rid of our neighborhoods, which is what happened in Lomas and parts of Sangra. So... What happened is I said, hey, man, we us bring peace. I thought that was the best thing. And I wasn't the only one. There was a lot of people. All the Maravilla gangs were trying to unite. There was a lot of it. But it was getting undermined. Undermined by homies, but also the police and or sheriffs particularly, but also them using homies. And people got to know that that's what happened. They infiltrated a lot of barrios. And all they have to do is infiltrate one or two guys. They don't yeah. take a lot. The guys that call a lot of shots, but they're all heroin addicts. You know how easily heroin addicts can be used? Uh how all, you can be owned. Yep. And so yes. some of them went along with it and they undermined the peace that we were trying to do. So that, so for, for, uh, for a minute there, there were some guys in Lomas that, these are older gentlemen by now that yeah. didn't like what you were doing, trying to make peace. You even yeah. wrote about one in the book, right? So the one guy that I found out later was an informant. No way. I didn't know it at the time. So he um, challenged me in front of everybody. He actually punched me in the, mouth, in the mouth, which is really like, hey man, this is like the worst thing you can do. I should have beat the heck out of him right there and then, but out of like respect for him, I, I don't know why I respect the neighborhood so much. I wasn't going to jump him. I should have, I probably could have beat him up, but I, I didn't, and I, I should have, but I didn't, and but I still stood my ground. You guys are being used, man. We're being used for somebody else's game. They didn't believe me, and then one night, uh, him and another homeboy shot at me. Oh wow! And that was the kicker. That. That yeah. destroyed everything for me. I didn't know what to do. You know, when you get betrayed by your homeboys. And again, it wasn't the whole neighborhood. A lot of guys were with me. A lot but, of guys agreed with but they me. they were the shot callers at the time. They were the guys calling the shots, and they were saying, we're going to war, and you can't stop it. And they went after me because I was the guy saying, trying to make peace. Yeah. Trying to make peace. They're, so thinking, they, they're thinking you're yeah. doing weakness, but in reality, in, Heinz, yeah. in hindsight, you were the stronger out of all of them because you were seeing something that most men don't see until later on in the, the future. Long, and then those guys are gone. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not around, you know, and they did all this damage, and the damage is still there. I oh, mean, the neighborhoods sorry. are still at war. Yep. And so, and then you, yeah, I get the pinta and everybody unites, but the wars gets taken on to other levels. Yes. So it never stops. We never stop being war warfare we never stop warfare did you we ever just take it to a do you ever have any conversations with any of the guys that were there on that time or so on? a few years ago uh because of my sobriety i started hanging around with some of the guys that are now clean they've okay. been doing 20 30 years in prison oh god heroin addicts for 20 30 years yeah. now they're clean and now i'm open to them because i would never go back to the neighborhood to talk to guys who are still using you know how it is everybody yeah. would still bring you down i said dude if you need help i'll help but i can't I can't deal with you if you're still in that negativity. So these guys okay. came to me and they were already clean and they said, you know, we know what you're doing and we want to let, and they said they supported what I was doing. Good. These are the older guys, um, my age that ran a lot of stuff, did a lot of damage, but are now some of them are Christian. Some of them are just sober. Some of them are just, and I said, just trying to live the last few years. Exactly. They got that and, and I'm saying that's good. You got it now. I mean, 
my just I'm, I'm all honor you honor you for being right. that kind of a man right. being a grandfather being the, the men that we need so i hooked up with my homies i even brought my son over to meet them get to know some I, of these I old forgot guys to ask, to ask you what they call you from the clica that was chin <laughs> chin chin man that was well the story is that when i was nine years old i got jumped uh -huh. and it cracked my jaw it didn't break it but just cracked it and a growth came out and pushed my whole jaw off so i Ever since then, I was like the ugliest kid around. <laughs> Everybody made fun of me, man. The girls called Shit. me monkey. Nobody oh, liked me. But guess right. who embraces you? Oh, Navario. That's, that's right. The neighborhood, the that's homies, right. the and homie then they say, right and then they say, "Your chin, bro. This is Your you." Chin. You know? I kept yeah. saying, "You got chin coming out," but I thought they were saying short for chino. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, so no, I know. Chin, no, I know. Chin. And in fact, I wanted. I, I got all these tattoos, but I wanted one tattoo I never did get of a. A Chinaman, yeah, chin underneath. Chin. You know, I'll hook you up, man. I got the boy right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Podcast, hook you up. Yeah, yeah. So, but the the thing was chin. That was my my placaso. And so, my parents tried to get it fixed. They had no money, but they said you got to get it fixed. And I go, uh, -uh. you know why? Identify with it. Uh, yeah, I should have got it fixed, man. Because <laughs> to this day, I only got three places where my teeth meet. Oh, because it got it's all off. So my teeth are all messed up and I have I never fixed it. <laughs> I'm still dealing with it, man. I said, man, I regret. I should have yeah. I should have done it then, but it's all right. So, so <laughs> oh God, Chin. That's perfect. That's perfect, Chin. Yeah. <laughs> so now let's rewind it a little bit and go into the mentor part of it. Uh who was that mentor of you? And let's get into a little bit of the uprisings and, and yeah. uh Salazar and all that stuff. You can go through so that. So I, I wanna say that this guy was uh he was one of the founders of the Brown Berets. And he was uh, up there as far as the radical Chicano part. I don't mean just Chicanos that wanted to do good. He was talking about changing the system. He was one of those guys. But he ended up being a youth worker in this new community center. And I met him because they had built a center near my neighborhood, and I broke in the night before and graffitied all the walls. You know, That's the way. You know, my placaso chin, all my homies. You know how you put all the homies the down. Roll call, the roll the call. The whole call. I had all the images, but it was it wasn't tagging. It was quite extensive. You know, it, it, it was art. Yeah, to him it was art. So they the next day I show up. They had a grand opening. I show up because I want to see my handwork in the, in the light, you know? I had a little flashlight, but I want to see it in the sunlight. And uh, they saw me and said, get that guy, we know it's him, because my, my name was up there. And they hired him, so he was supposed to get me and call the cops. Yeah. But what happened is, he didn't do that, which is kind of good. He talked to me for the longest time. And at one point he says, you know what? You're an artist, I see what you're doing here. This is actually artful. I mean, I don't like that you're, you did this, because the yeah. poor guy had painted the place, he set up everything, I ruined it for him. But he, he gave me an idea that took me a while. I, I didn't quite agree with him. I told him to drop dead. You know, you know how it is. <laughs> I, I, and I'll tell you something about that. The reason why I would do that to these adults, because no adults could stand long enough, and I got rid of them before they would even try. Mm -hmm. You know how it is. Yeah. Why yeah. invest time, emotionally time with these people? They're going to yeah. leave me no matter what. My parents threw me out. Everybody's gone. Mm -hmm. No teachers. I said, well, I, I'll treat them like bad now, and then they'll leave. He never left. That was your defense mechanism. Yeah, that was my defense maker, but you know the guy never left. He always stood by me. He always kept telling me, you got more than you. You're smarter than you think you are. And, I, and he eventually offered me a deal, which was pretty good. It says, I wanted to paint murals because he gave me the idea I could paint murals. And he gave me a book of Mexican murals. I didn't know oh. anything about murals. All these Siqueiros, Orozco, Clemente. And then behind the book were these Mexican um, Mayan temples that had murals in and out of the walls. And I never knew this. So I got intrigued. I said, I want to know how to do that. And he says, okay, I'll help you learn. 
but then you got to go back to school because I had dropped out. I said, yeah. no, I don't want to go back to school. I said, dude, you got to be your palabra. If I teach you this stuff, you be your palabra. And I, I did because in those days, palabra, palabra means something. palabra. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. So he taught me to paint murals. I did at age 17, uh, about eight murals with 13 gang kids. We were even in newspapers for doing this. And I would go to a rival neighborhood. Uh, they're not my enemies now. Estrada Courts, Barrio Nuevo, but yeah. at the time they were, because they were painting all the housing projects. Okay. And I was there to watch them and got to see them. I had a, a disguise yeah. kind of. Like, well, you, they so you were there originally when they were painting this they stuff. Were the original ones, man. Oh, and yeah. now it's been there for 50 years. Yeah. And so I learned, and then I went to the Goa's Art Gallery, which is still around, and they taught me the basics. And we painted these murals, man. And, and sure enough, True to my word, I went back to school. And I actually was so behind in school, but I excelled in catching up. Because in those days, there was no GED. Mm -hmm. You had to get your units or, or you couldn't make it. I actually got all my units. I went wow, to night school. Yeah. I went to, uh, what do you call it, a summer school. I got all my units, and I graduated from this school. I didn't go cap and gown because I was too late for that. Yeah. It's okay. I didn't care. Yeah. Bunch of white people anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I didn't care for the cap and gown. But the point was, uh, I, I excelled, and I made it. And um, he helped me accept the way. And I will say one thing about him. He didn't save me. He gave me the tools, yes. resources, and connections so I could save myself. Because the last time I was in jail, he wasn't there with me. In jail, the last time I was in the county jail, looking for many years in state prison, looking at many years in state prison, I decided to get out of heroin there. I decided to leave the madness there. I figured if I'm going to the state prison, I'm going to do it on my terms. That's where he had taught me. Right. And luckily, I didn't end up doing the state prison term. He, he got the judge to look at me and got people to show up in court, which is very now, helpful. Well, why were yes. you in jail for? Well, uh, I was assaulting police officers at the last. And what it was is I did something that no gangster would do. They were beating up a Chicana. Uh, she was already handcuffed, the sheriff's deputies, beating her up in a parking lot of an after hours club. And I went in there to her defense. Oh, and you know, that's not a gangster thing. No, but it was me, like, man. I'm, Tired of the cops beating up. She was already handcuffed. She's in the street. She's screaming. They're kicking her, beating her up with batons. I go, no. Nah. I stepped up. And they say I assaulted them. I didn't get a chance. There was eight police. <laughs> they jumped me. Put they, the beat down on you. And then, of course, they beat me down. They even drove me around before they went to the Norwalk shop station. You know, they drove, the drove me around. Uh, with two cops on the side, I'm already handcuffed, and they're beating me up and taking me to the subdivision. Some, some people you know? believe that those are myths, that those what happened. I oh, think no. I think it what was, it is, it doesn't it happen to them, so they believe yeah. it doesn't exist. It's a regular for almost every homie. Every yeah. homie's got yep. a story. Yes. Oh, yeah, I do. This too. Yeah, yep. so uh, I went through it, and then um, I was there in the county jail. Eventually, they went to the men's county jail, and uh, and then I was waiting to see what was going to happen. And um, the... This, this mentor, he got all the community, wrote letters on my behalf of the judge, brought people to the court. And the reason I mention this, because this is actually hopeful. A lot of guys go to court with nobody, not even their family. Yeah, no support. And people throw the book at you because yeah. you, you ain't got nothing. Mm -hmm. If you show a lot of love, that yeah, people care about you. Maybe you made mistakes, but people vouch for you. And they say, hey, man, this guy, hey, he made mistakes, but he's got a good heart. He's, he's Help him out. You'd be surprised, I, I find, uh, how many people, judges might actually help right. uh, because uh, we don't do, use that they come in they're all solo you know all the tough which guys and which and go on which and go on yeah. 30 40 years <laughs> <in prison>. later <laughs> yeah. but uh but i was fortunate so i never did the state prison time which was probably best i was oh, all prepared yeah. i was all prepared i was like you know i wasn't scared of it's like yeah, i'm ready to go i wanted to go on my terms i didn't want to go on heroin addict because you're owned by everybody yeah i uh but 
It turns out I didn't have to do it. But I walked out of the county jail the last time, and I was it. I've never been to jail for any criminal offense since what, then. What year was that? 1973. Nice. Were, were, were you on murder roll for a little bit when they so housed you over there? When I was 16, I got arrested for a lot of things, including attempted murder. That that fell by the wayside. I got arrested for the Chicano moratorium against the Vietnam War, and they were going to charge me for the murders of the people that died during the, the uprising. The, the, Why? How, how are they trying well, to Well, they that? say that me and my homies started it. We were the ones that stole the, the liquor from the liquor store. Oh, that, that's the one they were chasing. Yeah, yeah. So we were the ones that were st- kind of started it. But it was just their excuse. They were already right gear. They were already prepared. They were looking for any excuse. We gave them the excuse. Yeah. That's our fault. But they came in there and used us to attack everybody. Isn't that that's also everybody. where uh, the that famous journalist got killed by the and sheriff? Ruben, they were going to get me for his murder, What's too. What's his name again? Ruben Salazar. Ruben Salazar. So three people died. A lot of people injured. Several were arrested. But... Almost everybody that was arrested, two or three hours, they let them go. They kept five cholos longer, and then they put us in murders roll. And yeah. and we were going to look at all these murders. For the murders for the day. Yeah, the and they day kept day. us there at least, um, I'm thinking, um, 10 days, nights and days. So we were there. I had a cell next to Charles Madsen as part of the story. Uh, the first night I was there, the two big guys that were in my cell were trying to kill me with razor blade, but I'd really been in the street. You know, I, I, I tell oh, so people- So it wasn't a single man cell? No, no, you were all bunched up with a bunch of people. And I tell people, um, I used to tell them that um, I was scared, but I kept it. I, and you, it's not true, I wasn't scared. Cause you can't really hide fear. I just, I was just the dude that wasn't scared, which is not cool. Yeah, I should have been scared. Any any normal person should have yes. been scared, yes. would be scared. But if you know you've been in those situations, you really can't be scared. You got to look everybody in the eye and, and say, you, you're going to get me, but guess what? I'm going I'm to go down fighting. I'm going to go down, and if you don't get me, I told her, if you don't kill me, I'm going to find a way to kill you. They thought that was cool. Yeah, well, this guy's <laughs> all right. And I saved my butt because they see that yeah. there was no fear in my eye, and I was trying to protect a 13-year-old kid that they had with us, too. Oh, they had, damn, they have kids in there. None of us should have been there. We were, I was 16. It's 18 and over in Murder's Row. Of role. course. This is Hall of Justice Jail. They had us all there, teenagers, and they shouldn't have had that. It was all wrong. The whole thing was wrong. And then um, they let us go eventually, but I think the reason why is because all these Chicano activists were taking pictures. They were one of the first, it, it was Super 8 film, whatever yeah. it was, yeah. they were taking cameras and pictures, and it showed only the police beating up and killing people, including Ruben Salazar. There was oh. pictures of all that. So they had to let us go because there was no proof was no that proof we had done anything. And they could have said we started, but that's different. That's different than I actually murdered somebody. Yeah, they, they yeah. shot Ruben with a canister to the face, right? Tear gas gaster into a bar, which these are tear gas canisters you're supposed to do a public outside. Right. They shot it right into the bar, which like, why, why would they do that? And sure, sure enough, it apparently hit his head, blew his head out. And no charges ever came of it. No, they, they actually know who the cop was. He right. never. All the police that killed my homies and others got exonerated in those days. The only one that didn't was the Sangiver police officer who in 1977 killed this 18-year-old guy from Sangha that I actually knew and I was working with. I was trying to help him. By then, I was helping kids get out of gangs and everything. Yeah. They kidnapped, This cop kidnapped him, killed him, and he got arrested and found one of the first police officers in the state of California to be um, convicted of killing somebody as a police officer and was given a life sentence. Except here's the story. 11 or 13 years later, he gets exonerated by uh, the governor, Pete Wilson, the anti-Mexican oh, governor. Pete Wilson. And not only that, Pete Wilson hires him. Oh, wait. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? And they were going to make a movie of his life as a hero. 
What, what's his huh. name again? Billy McElveen. You guys should look it up. Oh, I'm definitely look it up. I've been finding some stuff because I would like to. Uh, we're working on trying to make a movie out of this story because it's an important story. The guy gets out, he dies, dies of cancer, he's free, he's a hero to all the police officers, but he kidnapped this 18-year-old kid Jesus. from Sangra, blew him away with these shotgun blasts and everything. He told the police that he had been kidnapped by two or three Sangra guys, and it was he lied. Yeah. And, um, and he actually got convicted, but then they let him go. You know that's how it goes. Got a pardon. Yeah. That's, that's what happened. So with that story, those that's stories have to be told because yeah, they're the stories. Absolutely. When you see George Floyd and the murder there, it's the resonance of all these murders, so many in the black and brown communities. Going on for um, decades. That yeah. nobody could talk about before. And we didn't have the kind of video the cameras video now. Cameras now you can see it. But even then, justice is barely opening the door. You know, after all that. So now you're getting out of the county jail. You never went back. How, do you, how, how did your life start transitioning away from the gang and becoming who you are now? Well, one of the good things we talked about earlier is that I didn't have no skills. I didn't know what to do, so I worked in factories. That's that's what worked. And, you know, in those days, L.A. was the largest manufacturing center of the country, bigger than Chicago, bigger than Detroit. It was huge. Yes. We had steel mills. We had oil refiners. We had garment industry. We had shipyards. We had a lot of industry. We had GM, GM plant. There was right. one in Van Nuys, and then there was one at, at Southgate. Okay. And there was a Ford plant, Pico Rivera. There was all these big... I worked at Bethlehem Steel for That's four years. Right. And those jobs, by 1984, they, LA lost 300 plants, and then many more after that. They just all fell apart. The deindustrialization yeah, killed yeah. it. Reagan came in and started pushing the jobs he out did. of the country. Reagan, the, the Republicans that they love so much. They love so much. He got rid of the industry. By the time Reagan and the first Bush got out, all the big jobs were, were Walmart. Mm -hmm. All the good jobs were gone, and now all the big jobs were Walmart, Kmart, and all those jobs. Yeah. Low-paying jobs. Low-paying, no unions. You know, we had unions. We had good-paying jobs. You could buy a house. Yep. That's what I was going to get to, yeah. That's what being a steel mill working at an auto plant was like. It was a great thing. And the Mexicans and blacks were barely getting in. And we were always oh, laborers. That's a great point. But we were yep. breaking through the skilled trades for the first time, and then they killed it. And then guess what? Their neighborhoods were left with nothing. And guess who else? That's when the gangs became drug-involved. The gangs were the most cohesive group in the neighborhood after the industry left, and they became the, the illicit industry. The economy was drugs. And it seemed to be by design to me. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, wait a minute. I mean, they get rid of these jobs. They get rid of all the organizations that were trying to do something like the Brown Berets, Black yeah. Panthers, all of them. And then the gangs are the only ones that can still keep an economy going, but now it's drugs. <laughs> And yeah. sure enough, as you know, crack comes in. It's no accident. Through the Reagan administration, crack comes in at the same time. All this stuff is going on. Yeah, well, yeah it all came in yeah. through higher power. So by the 80s you know? and 90s, you had the highest violence of gangs in the whole country, LA and Chicago being the leading ones. Mm -hmm. All over the country, we, we pe people killed more for drugs and gangs than ever in our history. In fact, it went down since then. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. yeah, they were they were bringing drugs to the CIA, so they were poisoning us. People, yeah. if they don't they're, know they're that stuff, they should know that our government played a role in getting that drugs in our neighborhoods, getting them in the, in, into our streets. Uh, they were almost, and you know, I want to say something about it. Um, they weren't rogue agents. They weren't crazy CIA guys. No. They were regular, good Americans, mm -hmm. good church-going people with suits and ties making these decisions. People should know that. Yeah. Because I, I worked in a TV show, Snowfall, and one of the problems I had oh, with Snowfall, man. I like Snowfall, and I, John um, um, Singleton mm -hmm. was 
the one of the creators brought me in who he passed which is sad he brought me in there but I had an argument with some of the people there saying that they made the CIA guys in that movie and that TV show like was rogue, go crazy. Right? He said, they weren't crazy dudes. These were the regular guys. They weren't rogue agents. Yeah. These were the regular American, yeah. good Americans making decisions that ended up impacting. Yeah, rogue agents. If it was rogue agents, they get the money in pocket. That money was going to the Contras. I it mean, was going it was, to the Contras. It's all, it's all noted. It's they all certified. Exactly. That's it's what all, they did. It's all in the, everybody knows it. And if people argue against it, they say, look, you just don't get the facts. The facts are there. I got facts. And not only that, I was a journalist. Okay, when I got out of the industry, finally, I became a writer journalist. That's what helped me. But one of my first assignments was San Bernardino Sun, where all the dry lakes were being used for the planes bringing in the cocaine bricks. Oh, really? That were being turned wow. into crack in people's I didn't know that. So, what, what, so, how did so as a reporter, I would talk to DEA and sheriff's deputies. Now I'm a reporter. They didn't like me, they didn't trust me, but now I'm a reporter. I'm asking questions. They told me, the DEA in particular, telling me that this is coming from um, Central America through Mexico. That's how the drug cartels got really big in Mexico and coming in to our neighborhood. They were telling me stuff the dea had a terrible relationship with the cia yes and the cia was doing this because they want to stop communism the dea could give a hoot about that they want to stop drugs so there was clashes so and the, the cia, CIA would never gonna, talk the to CIA you was yeah. a higher rank they were higher rank they wouldn't talk to you they wouldn't nobody would. but i had the a guys including some sheriff's uh, deputies in san Bernardino county which was very big for this stuff telling me this stuff they were bringing in the planes were coming in all the heroin i mean all the cocaine was being bricked was being used, send them ship out to neighborhoods everywhere. The money was being used to fund the Contras. That I learned even before Gary Webb wrote about them in the San Jose Mercury. Gary Webb. And then I ended up uh, as a freelance writer in Central America during the Contra War. Really? I was there. I got bombed twice, shot at with 50 caliber bullets, <laughs> never got hit, never got hurt or harmed, but I was there. I was in southern Honduras and I was in Nicaragua. So I can tell you as a fact, not just... I'm just not academic. I know for a fact that our country was involved in this this trade. And at the same time, they're giving mandatory minimums. They're locking us up. So that's, if that's you look right. at it, it's a perfect storm. They they drug us. They it. make us fight one another. And they lock us up. And, and they're making money all the way around. The largest uh, investment in prisons in the history of the world wow. was during that time. And gangs were part of it, and everybody that was played into it. Again, I, I I go into prisons, I talk to these guys, and I just say, listen, I get I get what happened, I get the system is, but don't forget, we played ourselves, yes, sir. So, Some so of did, us played into it. How did you get off of heroin? Because heroin's a hard drug to, oh, to kick. Dude, it was all cold turkey. Oh, tur you didn't go through any withdrawals there, there or anything? There was no. Oh yeah. Yeah, withdrawals. Yeah. It's the worst <laughs> thing. There was no re rehabilitation. There was no recovery programs in the body. There was nothing. Yeah. The only thing you could do is go to the uh, general hospital to get tested for a, uh, hep, C, hep C because everybody was worried about that. And I would go get my test just to see if I had it, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that they would do. There was no drug program. There was treatment. Now there is. I guess I get it. There's all over. But in that time, you just the only way to get out was cold turkey. And that's how yeah. I had to do it. And it's painful. Mm -hmm. But I was fortunate that I did it with guys in the county jail who knew what they were doing. The very same guys that were going to give me the drug. Yeah. With the guys that helped me Help get out of it. Now, do, do you yeah. also factor, because you were part of a movement that's never really uprose again, the Chicano movement. Yeah, it was, was strong. Big, it seemed like big. it was a lot of love. Do you factor all this drugs and gang violence into the destruction of the Chicano movement? I think it played a role just like it did a role with the black movement at the time. 
uh, remember Huey Newton? Yes. Great person. He became a crackhead. It, it, it took heroin and crack to get rid of a lot of people. Gil Scott Heron, one of the great poets, singers, writers, became a crackhead. Richard Pryor, one of the best voices in comedy about politics and change, my favorite comedian, crack. In other words, the drugs, um, the, the destruction of those groups, AIM, Black Panthers, Brown Berets, they were all undermined. We couldn't organize anymore. The organizations were getting thrown off. Uh, all of that, like you say, a perfect storm all happened. And then drugs comes in. And even when you were the most political, you get caught up. Now, not everybody get caught up. Obviously, there's people that I think got bought into the system. They got our activists, and then they found a little bit of money. They're doing well. Then they dropped the, the ball. I think others um, just gave it up for whatever reason. Some got into drugs. Me, my wife, and a few other activists never stopped. You know, no, I don't we kept struggling through everything, Movimiento, even when the Chicano movement really wasn't the thing no more, we still kept the Movimiento spirit. We doing everything we did, including 20 years ago, doing Tia Chucha at Centro Cultural, our bookstore, culture center, carrying that spirit all the way through. And that, that's in Silmar, right? That's in Silmar, yeah. yeah. I, I, we that keep hearing about this, right? Yeah, the bookstore. guys got to go. I, I recommend everybody go to Tia Chucha. It's and been around for 20 years. It's in Silmar. It's a big cultural space. We have the only bookstore for half a million people the only movie house for half a million people, the only place where you can get music, dance, theater, writing, all kinds of arts, painting, it's there. We also go into the prisons and we go into the juvenile halls and the probation camps as well as parole housing with artists and poets and theater people to work with them. So, yeah, it's still going on over 20 years. Dia Chuches. Yeah, yeah. And that's in Silmar. It's in Silmar. And yeah, it's, it's right there on Glen Oaks and Hubbard in the, where the Food for Less is, right next to the Food for Less there. Okay. So I would tell, tell people, go to T-I-A-C-H-U-C-H-A.org. Get the address, get the, uh, the programming, everything we're doing. Uh, come by. You'll love it, man. We had a grand opening because now we're in a third or fourth space, the bigger space, three times bigger than the last wow. space. We had that's 500 people come through. It was really beautiful. Cool. So, yeah. So, how do we? Well, no. Before I ask you that, back in the days when the Chicano movement was real strong in the late sixties, early seventies, right? Yeah. How were the artists that were Chicanos? Did they support it a lot, like the singers, comedians? So, along with the movement was all this art, because as you know, murals, artists, especially East LA, but even in Pacoima, other places, there was artists coming out of the woodwork. Man, murals was a big deal. We also had a lot of bands come out. Because uh, the bands used to be like the Midnighters and, you know, uh, Cannibal the Headhunters. Then they became El Chicano, and then they became Malo, and they became Tierra, wow. yeah. and Los Lobos. In other words, they were more like our, our, our culture. They were more right. conscious. Um, and also poets. There was a lot of poetry. I got into poetry because I started seeing Jose Montoya, who was the godfather of Chicano poetry. And he's passed now, but he was amazing. He was like our own people. And then also the black poets and Puerto Rican poets. All the, all the voices that were coming out of these str urban struggles were all there. And I became a poet because I heard them. I saw them. I got to meet them. And that got me thinking, I can do that, you know. So yeah. it was a great time for all the arts. But then again, all of it got crushed. You know, after a while, even murals were outlawed. I don't know if you know that you oh, could you, in the state LA city, which used to be the mural capital of the world, uh, outlawed murals for many, many years. Really? Only recently it got 
okay to do murals. Yeah, so it killed off the mural movement. People did it on the side. Graffiti yeah. camping, big, nice graffiti pieces, yeah. but now you had to do it like an outlaw. You yeah. had to sneak in and spray <laughs> and then get out, you know. So that's the world that uh, art. It seems like art was bringing all colors together. It brought all kinds of people, man. Art unites. Art is transformative. That's why we do it in the prisons and everything, because art really helps you change. It helps you think about being creative in the midst of chaos. We don't know how to do that, and that's important to me because it's all chaotic. The world's chaotic. To me, the way out is not to create another order so much; it's to be creative, and then see what kind of shape you can make out of that. Why, why do you think now in 2022 there is so much division amongst Rasa itself? You know, again, I think it has to do with everything that happened that splintered us. Again, some people did better than others. Um, some people started thinking, I'm better than you because you're recently arrived, which is silly. Yes. Um, you know, you're undocumented. Now you're not my family no more. Yes. I mean, the people started dividing themselves the way the American society is layered in this country you know Classism. white supremacy is still there class is still very important in this country people don't want to talk about it but there's a class society there's a racial divide society and we've always had it that's what the young people are reminding us it's always been this way you're never going to say when they say make america great again but when was it ever great it was always carrying this seed of division and racial conflict and class division it's always been there now i hope we get more conscious we're more aware and we can actually begin to do something about it that's what my struggle is now do you believe that we should put some pressure on some of our you know tv stars some of our singers because it seems to me as I've been doing this for like four years now, right? They're very scared. They're shy away from any problem that has to do with Rasa. When it came to like the BLM movement, they were all over. They yeah. were all over because it was popular. But, you know, it, it seems like the character of somebody is when it's not popular is when you do something. You're it seems right. like, and it seems like yeah. our people just don't want to stand. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's one of the reasons why I'm running for governor. Because, again, it goes to politics, too. We've had a lot of our hint now in office. Um, many of my like and respect, I don't want to knock them all down, but I don't think they're in general taking on these issues the way they should. They kind of fall into a complacency. You know what I'm saying? Yes. They get comfortable yeah. pretty soon. You know, hey, uh, I'll get yeah. by you. We'll get by. They they don't play the role what they should be, which is really voicing our issues, our concerns, and real solutions to real problems. Yes, One of the reasons I'm running for governor, and I'm running from a grassroots level. I'm not. There's no corporate donations and nothing. We're going to do it grassroots. Is we need those voices yes, to say we we need the real answers. Why is there homes LA homelessness? There shouldn't be homelessness, but it, all that perfect storm we talked about helped create the homeless situation yes. where people were being pushed out of the neighborhood. Gentrification, all these issues came in, and uh, drugs coming in, all these issues that we're facing. The mental illness is based on the world that we're in. Okay, Lewis. Driving them th out. This is where we're going into the governor political yeah. section, right? This is where we're not friends anymore, right? Now. <laughs> is that what it is? This, you don't like, poli you don't like uh, politics? Oh, no, I, oh, no, 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 no. I love uh, politics, uh, my man. But yeah. this is where we get, since you're yeah. running for governor, yeah. right? This, you're throwing your hand in the ring. You got to be asked the tough questions, right? There you go. Okay, there so let's go. start off. Homelessness. <laughs> yeah. What is your uh, solution to what we got going on? And I'll true because my not my solution. When I see homelessness, I don't see it quite the way you see it. Okay. I do agree with yes, America definitely had a huge role in it, had a problem with mm -hmm. it. But now it's gotten to the point where the majority of people out there are not homelessness, they're drug addicts. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that the underlying problem of being drug addicts is not even being discussed by any politician. They always say homelessness, and I believe they say it for two reasons. The Democrats say it because they don't want to say it's drug addicts, and the, and even the Republicans will say homeless new because they want to build more because they say, hey, no, because we need to build more housing, we need more housing, we need more housing. So it's kind of both parties are using it to bamboozle the people. So And, and they don't get results. And we don't so, get results. So I say it's intertwined. So it's intertwined in that... Um, Many more drug addicts, many more mentally ill people. We don't have mental facilities and help in this city, in this state. We don't have enough of it. Like I said, when I was growing up, there wasn't any recovery. Now there is, but it, to me, it's a whole industry that's not necessarily resolving the problem. You got more people on drugs than ever before. Now you got crystal meth. There was drugs now that never yeah. existed. Yeah. How can they have a war on drugs and drugs get worse than they were when, when they first started the war? Mm -hmm. So to, to me, it's again by design that people are just being fed the worst parts of it. The other side of it, there was a terrible housing crisis all the way through, but in 28, we had the mortgage financial crisis. Mm -hmm. It led to a lot of people losing homes, a lot of renters being thrown out. At the same time, as you know, the gentrification came in. So to me, it's intertwined. It's intertwined with a real de uh, design to get rid of poor people, get rid of people from our neighborhoods. As you know, we talk about Highland Park, Echo Park, parts of the valley. We're looking at Watts, all these communities, a lot of gentrification. Black and brown people, poor people being pushed out. They're going to the deserts, Lancaster, Palmdale, they're over on the Inland Empire. They're all being pushed out, and now they're making it almost hard for anybody to survive. So I think it's an intertwined issue of all of it. I agree with you, it's not just one or the other. I've been in those encampments, and you're right, I have seen a lot of drugs. Oh, I can take you all over, of we got them all over here, man. But a lot of homelessness, what people don't understand, is actually people living in, in garages. They're not really in, in encampments. A lot of them, like for example, Pacoima has an elementary school that 25% of those kids are homeless. But they're living in RVs, they're living in campers, they're living in garages. In other words, they're not necessarily in the encampments. Well, see, so it, not, not to cut yeah. you off, but those people, yes, they're homeless. Yeah. Those people, yes, they need help. I, yeah. I, I think we need to separate the good apples with the bad. And people might say, they're, they're human. Yeah, they're human beings. But by the time you become a Tecato, by the, the time you become a crystal meth guy, like you say, you won't go back to the barrio and meth because they're doped out. So if you got guys out here in encampments, they're all doped out. The reason they don't want to go into these rehab places because they can't get high anymore. Yeah. So I think if, if we can separate the class and say, listen, that person has a family, they just can't afford, yeah, I'm all for low housing. I'm all for that. Yeah, yeah. But I think if, if we don't separate the, the drug addicts from the homeless, it just, it, it turns a lot of voters into, no, I'm not putting, in other words, you as a governor, are you, would you expect us to put more money into this? Because we had Measure H already, billions. Uh, the governor now is trying to put $12 billion. Would you be for adding another $12 billion to the, to the budget? Well, I don't think it's about adding more money. If it is, let's do it and make sure it works. But the problem is you're adding all this money and it's not working. No, you're just throwing money at so drug addiction. That's that what it work. is. So what I would say is you have to do the treatment. Treatment on demand. It's, it's a very important issue because I couldn't have it growing up and barely doesn't happen now. You got to make sure that people get treated. I would say most of them, even if they're treated, even if they're on drugs. What if they don't want treatment? Well, if they don't want it, then there's not much you could do. Well, there is. How about but, this? How about this? How about you start enforcing the laws they enforced in the 80s, the 90s, mostly the 90s, yeah. loitering laws, where if you're out there, you're loitering, you're going to get arrested. But instead of going to jail, prison, we have encampments that is going to treat you. Well, I would appreciate that. In other words, 
instead of putting them in jails and prisons, because we know they're, no, filled, they're a bunch of drug addicts, let's get them the help they need. Let's get them in places where they can get help. And, you know, I saw this in Europe. I go to Europe a lot. And they actually have, um, if you go to some of these places in Europe, they have places like that. You can actually sh- you can actually shoot up heroin, but it's clean. It's not the street stuff. You can shoot it up clean, healthy with a nurse. But right next to it is a treatment center if you want it. Yeah. If you don't want it, they can't force it to go in there, but they but make it very clear. It's there. You want it, you go. If you want to keep using it, come here. Don't do it in the street. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's actually lowered uh, the whole heroin population in particular but they got questioned they got all these issues every drug addict is given that opportunity you know to get the drugs they're clean if you so you don't get in the street because the street stuff is bad news i mean the crystal meth's got fentanyl people are oh, they're dying going, they're going crazy with they're going crazy you know yeah. so and you, even the heroin isn't really heroin you go take heroin you don't know what kind of junk they got in there yeah, and people are ODing on junk so the point is you you can do that if you put the money there not just say I'm, I'm going to put millions of dollars and just keeping a bureaucracy going and not really help nobody. So I, I think what you're saying it's a multi-pronged approach, Absolutely. and that's what it should be. Absolutely. Get the people that need housing, put them in housing. The kids that are living in garages or in their RVs, yeah. get them housing, yes. man. Absolutely. And then the there's people that need damage. treatment, they should get treatment. And you know, there's people in the world that can show us. We yeah. act like we're we we got all the answers. Go. I've been there. I've seen these mm-hmm. places. Uh, they got answers. They give people help. They've lowered the, the problems of drugs um, much better than what we've done. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. I got a whole list for you, man. There you go. Bro. That, was go just, that was just <laughs> level just one. We got yeah. about level 10 right here. Yeah. Do you support Gascon as a DA? Oh, he's- I actually do support him. And this is the only reason why I support him. I get some of the issues that he's confronting. Uh, the reason why I support him is because I really don't believe that the... Uh, a prison system, the way it's set up. And I've been working in prisons for 40 years. And I go in there as a poet, as a writer, I go in there to healing circles. I, you know, I've been up and down the state, 18 states, going to prisons. I think the mass incarceration system, as we pointed out, is part of the perfect storm. I think people need to be provided with a lot of help okay. and assistance and resources. You know, remember I mentioned the mentor? Mm-hmm. He gave me the tools, connections, and resources so I can save myself. He didn't say, I'm saving you. Yeah. He wasn't going to do that. But when you save yourself, you start owning your life. That's what we got to help people to own their life. Not just, I'm going to help you, and then now you're dependent on me. Mm-hmm. You know, dependence is not just drugs. There's dependence on programs. There's dependence on all kinds of ways. And I think all of that is not what we're talking about. So, But what, what are you saying, like Gascon? He's... Uh He's he's taking the gang enhancements off. He's taking yeah. mandatory saying He's doing all this, but now that you see that he's done all this, all the guy, a lot of guys in prison are are now getting out of yeah. out of prison. Crime is going through the but roof. What's once. missing? You, you you're already pointing out what's missing. What's missing? What happens when these guys get out? They got well. They got nothing going. Exactly. On. So it isn't. Yes, just get them out of prisons. Well, prisons. Well, actually, right now, no. Actually, right now, there's a lot of work. This is it's the 4.1 million <laughs> people quit their jobs, and it's harder for me to keep people working because people don't want to work because the government keeps giving out free handouts. Well, let's just say this, and I I think it's again trying to own your life. Give people the tools to build their own lives and the communities that they're in. Just give us the tools. And you know, something that came out of the uprising was that give us the hammers and the nails, and we will rebuild our communities. Nobody took. I saw that. I saw paper, bloods and crips, unity. The one good thing that came out of all that, yeah. and yet nobody took it seriously. 
that's what they needed. Give us the hammers and the nails. But there's jobs to be done. There's roads Absolutely. to be fixed. Absolutely. There's so much to be done. I would keep people working. I love working because it teaches you to be disciplined, self-disciplined, yes. to get up in the morning, to get the job done, to maybe not want to be on drugs all the time. If you're idle, you got nothing to do. And if you get out of prison and you don't help these guys with anything to do, they're warehousing them in shelters. I don't know if you know, there are yes. huge shelters that these guys yeah. parolee housing that's just awful. Um, said, no, no. So getting them out is only part of the problem. What happened to the rest of it? What happened to that support? What happened to the ability to give these people skills so they can get a job? You know, yeah, well, and, they're, they're, you know. The, I think that th uh, the thing is they need, it's when they come out a lot of times they come out with a certain mentality and they don't have yeah. people skills, unfortunately, because yeah. I see it all the time. I hire guys coming of out of prison, right? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of them, if you, a job will change your life. No yeah, doubt about yeah, yeah. it. A, a job will change your life. But I, th I think also we have a different level of gang member that we did from the seventies. Yeah. Now we got now we're back to 80, 90s type gang members. So what do you tell somebody like with Gascon, somebody that killed your son or daughter that's innocent and Gascon is a 14 year old guy. What do we do with a 14 year old murder nowadays? You tell the, the people oh, we're going to let them go in four or five years. Yeah, well, that's just, I think where the gaps exist and I think where you're pointing out and I'm totally understanding that you just can't let these guys out without providing that uh, a net to really help. Them How much at. time do we give a 14 year old killer? Well, Here's the thing. Is it a matter of time? I think that if you, for example, when I was growing up, it didn't take very long for me. And I got, I'm one example. All it took was, I, I call it not being scared straight, being cared straight. Nice. Somebody cares for you enough. Some people like me would, would change your life. Because I was a murderous, homicidal kid. I hate to say that. I yeah. was. I was suicidal, homicidal. I, did. I, I didn't care if I died. I didn't care who died with me. That was my attitude. Uh, something, it took a lot, but it took one person with whatever lack of resources he had, he made it happen. Can you imagine if we could replicate that in every neighborhood for every kid? If every young adult would mentor a younger adult, you know, just mentoring, just one person. Can you imagine if we trained mentors, anybody, a father could also mentor some kid. Your kid's uh, hanging out with his kids in trouble. Instead of, don't bring him out here, what does he need? You don't got a father. Yeah, mental has changed lives. Maybe we can do that. So I would work on training a whole group of our community to work with these kids. Mentoring, eldership, all these things that we're missing, I would work on making sure that we have them. So it isn't just throwing money, like you're saying, just throwing money at the problem yeah. and walk away. You're actually trying to establish something that's own, that's older, that's sustainable. And we've seen it when it does work. I've yes. done mm -hmm. it. But it's never enough resources. A lot of people don't even believe it works. I've seen it work. Yeah. Bring these mentors together, teach them, train them, get them out there. They're the members of the community. You see them, you learn to respect them. You, you, they don't disrespect the kids, but they don't take a bunch of nonsense from them either. You know, you know how it is. So that's, I, that's so, the way. so I got to ask again: How much time do you give a 14-year-old gangbanger that kills an innocent woman or, or guy? So here's the thing: Right now, because if people you, are going to want to know this. You yeah, yeah, I know. That's a good question. If you do. Um, and I think I saw this in Europe. They give you, they don't give, most of it is very little sentencing. Uh, they give um, a murderers maybe three to seven years. Oh, Jesus. Crime will go through the roof over here. But you know why it works over there? Why? Because in three to seven years, they give a person ability to shift their life, shift what they were doing. I was surprised when I was in Italy and they had these... Uh, juvenile offenders came to me, they brought them out of the juvenile facility to come to where I was at. 
and I had a Spanish language, a Spanish escort, a priest escorting him. So I could talk to him and say, I can't speak Italian, but I can speak Spanish. And I says, well, these guys might be the lightweight kids. And he says, oh, no, we have a kid here that stabbed one of his fellow students. We have another kid that was working for a local mafia and bombed somebody's house and killed a couple of people. These aren't lightweights. I said, well, how do you let them out? Because we teach them how to live, how to think about living, what to do, and also that if you do good, you're going to be rewarded and you're going to be given support and, and, and you're going to be given opportunities. These are the kids that done well, and we give them these opportunities. And I asked them, do any of them escape? Not one escape. We've never had anybody escape. In other words, it's a whole different attitude change. And I think, unfortunately, we don't got that to change, so it's going to be problematic because well, we can't I, see changing. I, I think also kids. we live in a different world than over there. Uh, we live in California. It's, it's almost like, you know, it, the gang culture is so embedded. It's really huge. And, and, and it. that has a lot to do with it. But it. it does have a lot to do with mentoring father and families. And yeah, I, I would love to have more stuff in the community out here. I, I, I even do that when I was in the prisons. I, I stopped going with the pandemic, and I'm not going back because I'm doing so much other stuff. Yeah. But I was teaching creative writing, but I wasn't. I was teaching creative thinking, creative living. Mm -hmm. I, I used creative writing as a way to get in because the prison ain't gonna tell me, uh, they're gonna say, you can't do creative thinking, creative living, they don't know what that is, but creative writing. But I was teaching them to rethink themselves and their lives. I was getting them through writing to go back and what have you done in this world? Go back and look at everything. Look at the patterns of your own life. How do you shift those patterns? There's ways of doing that. And a lot of those guys were older guys for some of them 20 30 years and they were coming at me like we don't really want to be part of this world no more some of them were never getting out of prison they yeah. wanted to get out i said well then we'll learn we'll teach we'll help each other i was training a lot of guys in the pintas to do this and then of course other people come over the programs recovery yeah. i mean what do you call it restorative justice programs all kinds of other things uh it's possible but again there's not enough most prisons don't have any programming the few that do, I got in on them, uh, yeah. but most of them don't. And so you got guys serving many years in prison that aren't giving any help. Now, for some people, to be honest with you, prison is the best thing that ever happened to them. Yeah. So you have to yeah. take that account. My, my son says that. You know, he's, he's always pointing out that he did close to, he did 13 and a half year stretch. He did a little bit of time stretch. before that. And uh, what happened is um, he changed his life in there. If the issue was that if he stayed in the street, he would be dead or people will be killed. And so in many ways, prison was good. But I think the question or the answer wasn't so much the prison, but being able to be removed in another situation where you can start being seen and looked at and also see yourself. That's important. And he did it on his own because we helped him. Because I think if we didn't help him the way we could, he might not have seen it. But I, that, I think also with, when it comes to like when you're, um, I mean, back of a better word, gangster criminal running the streets and all that, or a drug addict, a lot of times it's just up to that individual to finally say, you know what, I'm tired of this lifestyle. Yeah, that's happened to me. You know, and again, I, I was tired seven years of drugs. That's not a long time. I know oh, guys 20, not, 30 years. That's a long time to be But for, for me, it was a long time, and it was like I was tired of Now, I wasn't tired. I kept drinking. People do that. They find a way to justify, and I'm drinking. Now I'm 20 years afterwards, I'm drinking. I'm realizing that's I'm tired of this. Another. I'm starting realizing I'm tired of all of this. I'm tired of the drinking. I'm tired of the drugs. I've always had a crutch. I always had an excuse. I always had, I was an addict thinking it's person. It's birthday party. It's Saturday. It's, <laughs> it's Friday. Something. It's New Year's. It's Christmas. So you're right. It, it is hard. Now, the longer you're in it, the harder it is, but I think it could help. It could work. Um, for me, it was, um, I got into a recovery program at the time there was in Chicago. I got into a really good one. And then I decided to go to my own uh, spiritual roots as an indigenous Chicano. 
You know, my mother's Tarahumara native from Chihuahua. Your, probably, your family's probably yeah. got Chihuahua. Uh, if they're from Chihuahua, they got Tarahumara in them. I know my family does. My mom who would say, oh, somos Tarahumaras, you know, and she knew. And I've gone down there. So I went to my indigenous spiritual practices. That's me. I'm not proselytizing. I'm not trying to convert nobody. Uh-huh. But any spiritual practice that teaches you deep, and it could be Christian, it could be yeah. Buddhist, yes. it could be all kinds of things, will help. And that's what helped me. Finally turning my life around. But how do you get these 14-year-old kids to do that? You give well, them, say, say a 14-year-old yeah. kid goes to prison for murder. You give them, say, 15 years. You know, at 15 years, that could change his whole life to yeah. be institutionalized and, and that's come right. out. Yeah. Well, you know, where do you catch him so, to be like, okay, his, you, you give him, instead of giving him 15, you give him 10, because at 10, he'll still be like, all right, I'm going to change my life now. I think that's, you know? there's a time where you can do some good. Three to seven, even 10 years. Yeah. It pulls you away, but if you do well with them, Really teach them, really the work with them, it, it, do it well. Yeah. They'll come out. My son did 13 and a half, but he came out yeah. positive. He came out strong. Um, it may not happen to a lot of people, but again, there's nothing going on for and them. And then what do you tell the family of the victim? Like, you know what? You know, they want to see this kid in for part the rest of, of his the life. The restorative justice concept is you involve the victim in, the, in it. And I'll give you an example. The Navajos do this. And I know I spent a lot of time with Navajo. Uh, and I've elder adopted my wife 25 years ago. And we've been part of their family ever since. But they do very strong restorative justice. I work with a murdering kid that was 16. He murdered a Navajo police officer. He was on crystal meth. The families knew each other because in the in Navajo res, everybody knows each other, at least those communities, they know yeah. each other. So the family was pissed yeah. off. He murdered their son. And, yeah. and, and this kid was, uh, but he uh, told people that the book that helped him was always running. So they got me involved, and I started writing them in the jail and everything. And the and the tribe got involved because they wanted to bring him to the state prison system and get him for death penalty. Mm-hmm. But he's on the res, and they fought yeah. to keep him federal. But then they also said, "But we want to control what happens in the federal level." So working with the victims mm-hmm. who were pissed off, yeah, but they knew all knew each other. They all had to have agreement. It was acuerdos, as they call them. Only they have different names than the Navajo, but Acuerdos for us. Mm-hmm. Agreement was keep him in prison till he was 21, but help him. Yeah. Everybody said, if you help him, give him treatment, give him help, do whatever he needs to do, help him. And at 21, let him out, and we'll keep an eye on him. They get him a job. I said, get him a job. They got him a job and help him out. He's been out for 20 years now, and he's good. Good stuff. He's good. And I'll tell you one thing else about him. I didn't know. He wrote me a letter. And I put it in one of my books, Hearts and Hands, which I gr- recommend people read that book. Yeah. In there, he says, I never told anybody why I was so hateful. When he was seven, three years old, and when he was seven years old, he had a three-year-old brother. They were playing by themselves in the res, and somehow they found a gun. Mm-hmm. Who knows where. He accidentally shoots his brother and kills him. So... He never got a chance to talk about this. He got taken away from his house. He was put in institutions. You know what I'm saying? They were setting him up to be this. And I'm not trying to blame him totally for, blame the system for him killing this guy. But you can see where the setup was. You get some understanding to what You get the understanding. And then when I read that story and I realized, boy, what this kid was carrying. And that came out of the treatment they were giving him where he could talk about it, where he could write about it, and everything, all the abuse he got institutionally, all this stuff. So you can see how he was going to end up this way. It all helped him. Um, and, in other words, it's possible. It isn't easy. But, no, but, but what we're well, doing now is not working. Whatever's I, doing. I, I can agree on that. I can definitely kids, agree on that. I mean, you got that. a 14-year-old kid, even myself, I got tried as an adult, and I was already going to 
prison. Yeah. You know, that's not a place for a 15-year-old kid. Or well, yeah, as you know, prisons kid. are a university cause. That's what yeah. we learned no, the, the hardcore sure. way. There's something needs to change. You learn a lot in prisons, but you're not necessarily learning the right things. Yeah, but even the juvenile hall systems, I oh. mean, these kids are running. The, the staff isn't even running them no, no more. Right, these I kids are running Let's shift this a little bit. Um, illegal immigration. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I'm obviously for the support of undocumented people. I believe that people who come here, especially DACA students, had no choice. Give them a break. Let them be citizens. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I don't think that um, we should treat these people less than anybody else. That's my family, especially when it comes to the border. The problem is, though, is those countries that they come from, and I've been there. I've been to El Salvador. Yeah. I've been to Honduras. I've been. Uh, I've spent a whole month there working with abandoned kids. I've been to Nicaragua. They're all got terrible problems that if they don't get resolved, they're going to keep coming over here. They want to stay in their countries. Yeah. yeah. Parts of Mexico, they can't. So, in all those countries, they came out of civil war, really terrible civil war. Yeah. And then they had the worst poverty you can imagine. Honduras, after all, Haiti is the poorest country in the country, yeah. in the world, in the in the Americas. And then you had corruption. The corruption from Mexico all the way down. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying everybody's corrupt. I'm saying enough government. of them. Yeah. Government is enough corruption that you can't trust nobody. Can so people cannot survive. And then you got this ecological problem where, like in Guatemala, 60% of the arable land was taken over by um, the fruit companies, mm -hmm. the big companies. People couldn't live anymore. And then when those companies left, the land is now arable, not arable. They can't work them. They're not surviving. So. You created, again, another perfect storm, if you want to call yeah, it. There's no middle class. And you're no, either poor or you're rich. You got poor and you got the rich hit hiding. I was in Ciudad Juarez in 2010 when it was the murder capital of the world. Mm -hmm. They had the rich people, and they weren't really rich. They were middle class. You would, you know, mm -hmm. hiding behind barbed fence with guards and everything. Mm -hmm. And the rest was these slums. As you know, yeah. the slums got worse. I, I, was, I remember the Cartolandias they used to have in Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez, but now the worst... The slums are just spread out from people coming over Mexico and Central America just trying to get over here. So we created a terrible storm that's not helping them and not helping us uh, as a world. The world, see, what happens with nation states is we start imprisoning people within the nations. It used to be when you had migrancy, you migrated because of famine, because there wasn't enough food. You can go to another place, another part of the world where you can survive until that gets bad and you can move and then yeah. let that place get better. We can't do that now. We create refugees. And the refugees come from all over the world, southern hemisphere world. So you got people from Arab countries, from Africa, from Asian countries, poorest countries. Yeah, they're now, they're in, they're in Europe. Europe is the same thing. Europe is no longer white people. It's a mix of the world is all right. there. The U.S. is a mix of the world. And, but instead of being like, okay, we're going to be striding borders and everything else, which just all just create more refugees and creates more problems, we got to find a way to uh, work again both ends of it. What do we do in those countries to give these people the ability to survive so they won't have to leave their countries? Yeah, because they don't want to leave. And then do what we can here so when the people do make it, we don't treat them like criminals and treat them badly. Some of them are held in detention camps five, ten years, and they haven't even committed a crime other than they crossed the border. And even when they try to be asylum seekers, which is legal, mm -hmm. they don't give them that legal option. Mm -hmm. So that's my sense of it. We've created 
uh, monsters of our own making. It's, it's also you know? the, the corporate greed. Is, is The corporate greed is awful because people don't realize that many of those people were thrown off their land because of the corporations came in, took over. Yes. If you go to the borders, the Miqueladoras, right? They came in there, they hired these people, very little money, this, it's just exploitation. And uh, and they couldn't survive off the land, so now they're working in maquiladoras. And then when those maquilas lose their jobs, they got nothing. Yeah. What are they going to do? They have to come over. So again, it's all creating, I say by design, all creating a situation, monsters of our own making. We call them monsters. We call uh, all the gang kids monsters, and I, I get it. They can be. I know I was one of them. They could be pretty monstrous, but we created the situations that they would exist and happen and keep perpetuating. What do we do to get on the front end of it? Not the back end, the front end, foundational, basic structural things. Structural things have to happen in those countries. You can't just band-aid it. You can't just fix it on the top. You gotta have structure. I I wish there was a a cloning machine so I can clone you and put you in every barrio from here to New York. (laughs) Because what you got, you, you do, you, you, you have that energy, you have that solution, you have that patience, you have that compassion, and you got the love, and, and you can feel it in the air. Right? Yeah, and it comes from growing up in those places. You know, I've been there, like, I, I've been in the prisons, and afterwards, I didn't go to prison, but I've been going there. I've, gone to the, I've been to those countries. Mm-hmm. I've, been to the, I've been all over Mexico. I've, been to, I've seen, like, again, talking about Ciudad Juarez, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen what we do as a country is not helping. I see what we do when the gang kids come down there and all they do is get, is get worse because there's no jobs for them. There's nothing for them to do. Not all the gang kids that have been deported down to those countries are bad, but when they have nothing to do, what do they have? Yeah, they have what they learned. They're worse our, than us over yeah, here. They, they learned we from exported us. It. We, ex- yeah. exported we exported gangs. that problem. Yes, we did. And they learned from us and they took it to other levels over yep. there. I get it. We don't do the kind of stuff that I've seen in those countries. Yeah. But we gave them the training in our prison them. system, in our juvenile facilities. We gave them those training. So I think, again, intertwine. They're all intertwined. It's fine answers that can bring both into it together. So, so before we start wrapping this thing up, uh, you got any poems you bring? Yeah, I actually do. Come on now. Because I am Come a poet. now. I, I am the, the, the I'm governor. I'm comfortable right here. Poet gov- uh, governor. Uh, how do you say? Poet governor. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do this right now. So I'm going <laughs> to just maybe just read one because I, I, I know we got a lot going on. So let me just read. Take your time. Let's take your time, brother. You know, I'm see if I can find a poem that I wrote for the campaign. Um, oh boy, maybe I can't yeah, find it. Oh, are you looking for that? I got a question. Um, yeah, yeah. When did you realize that you couldn't actually write a book? Like, were you like in the neighborhood and you're just thinking like, oh, I could just, your mind just starts going, like not really realizing. I started writing in juvenile hall and in jail uh-huh. and I was a terrible writer, but I just love to read. I think what helped me when I was homeless, I spent many hours in the public library. Honestly, I love books. Yeah, that's how I learned English because I couldn't speak English going to school. I learned it. Well, you watch TV, you learn it. But I read books. I love books. I had this love of books. Turns out my my dad loved books, mm-hmm. and then turned out a grandfather wrote books in Mexico. Mm-hmm. He was part of the Mexican Revolution, so it's in my blood. Somehow it's in me, and somehow books became my life. And then I said, so now I'm you're in the be public library. Now you see your own books there. Yeah, how does that feel? there you go. That's the important part. That that's transformation. I would go to the libraries. You'll never see a Garcia or a Sanchez or yeah. Rodriguez. Now you got all these books from people like us that are writing too. And so that's what's important. With a theme yeah. for the poem. So the poem, I'm going to read you this poem. I just wrote it for the campaign. California, a marvelous state with every terrain possible. 
California with climates and natural environments unrivaled in the world, and yet with poison and degraded landscapes, ecosystems scarring our land, what wildfires and drought made worse by global heating, a destabilized climate threatening conditions for life. All preventable. California, a wonderfully diverse state with a rich blend of cultures and peoples with wisdoms and talents from the indigenous and around the world. California, a land of plenty with massive industries and still there's widespread poverty, hunger, homelessness. There's vast wealth and power concentrated in the hands of a few while many of us barely subsist. Our governance, our body politic, too but often fails us hijacked by corporate and political entities organized against the rest of us. There's a winner-take-all electoral process that underrepresents our voices, our hopes, our dreams. We've been betrayed by an economic system that prioritizes profit, not people, rewards greed instead of meeting human need. It's time for change. Time for a new California. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, man, so... We're gonna start wrapping this bad boys yep. up. I want to thank you guys for tapping in here. I will put the links to all his uh, to the the campaign where you can donate, where you yep. can get in touch with this whole party. I want to thank you so much for coming over here and just yeah, sharing yourself right. with us and your whole story, man. And yeah. I'm gonna give you the last word. You can look into the camera and give your shout outs. Well, Lewis. just just say let's let's make a difference now. Let's make it happen. I've always been against. Uh, odds, people say the odds are against me, but let's change those odds. Let's make it winnable now, for sure, for everyone. And we'll fade to black, Chris. There it is. And that's it, buddy, man. Thank you Thank so you, much. Man.